This is Why Change, the podcast for a creative generation. We are your hosts. I'm Jeff. Hola, hola. Soy Carla. It's Rachel here. What's good, y'all? I'm Ashraf. And I'm Madeline. Why Change is a podcast that brings listeners around the globe to learn how arts, culture, and creativity, especially as applied by young people, can change the world, one community at a time. You're invited each week to learn and laugh while exploring the question, why change? All right, let's get started. Welcome to this episode of the Why Change podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Jeff Poulin, and I'm joined here by another co-host, Carla Estella Rivera. Carla, how are you? Hey, I'm doing really well. Excellent. It is so good to see you. It's been a little while since uh, you've been on the podcast. If listeners um, want to scroll on back, you can hear my interview with Carla at the very start of our podcast. But it's really great to hear your voice with us today and to see how you're doing. So what's been going on in your world in Chicago? Lots of things are going on, uh, particularly in the free street world. We are about to embark on a huge project called 57 Blocks. And 57 Blocks is the show that is um, focused on basically uniting our north side and our south side ensembles. And from our Pulaski Park location to our back of the yards location, there's 57 blocks. So what we are, um, what we're exploring in this outside of just uniting both of our ensembles, which is really exciting for us, is this notion of pathways, portals, and pipelines, which are all these buzzwords that you often hear, particularly when we're talking about young people and their futures, right? So um, within these three words, we're looking at education, uh, immigration, and incarceration, which are three really major um, issues that our young people face and grapple with and are often labeled as, um, you know, the pathways that they go through, um, I think are often predetermined for them by folks. And so the way that these young people are really exploring these themes and, and telling the stories and really utilizing this show and these tools to advocate for themselves and really bring to light um, how, you know, a multi-generational audience could really help address and shift the narrative with them is really, really exciting for me. That's so great. And I also love too, just that idea of, of pathways and portals and pipelines, because they're also elements of, of like the infrastructure of a community, right? Like the pipelines that deliver water or take away used water or the pathways that people walk as they go to their jobs or go to school. Like that's, such an integral element and we have turned those terms into buzzwords that can either be negative or positively associated with things you know you think the um, you know pathway um the school to prison pipeline for example or the pathway to student success right there's connotation that's built in with those and it's really important to like unpack that and particularly in sort of this intergenerational way that you're going about, I think is really great because that's one thing that I've noticed at least is language between generations changes and things that are either reclaimed or no longer acceptable can create some, some inter-community strife. So a theatrical exploration of that sounds like a really fantastic pursuit to be on. Absolutely. And I think it's interesting. Um, the other thing that I love about that is that, you know, often, you know, folks that are in seats um, that are creating policy, right? Whether it is legislation or whether it is school policy or whether you know, it is you know, the rules in which you operate in a particular space often aren't um, 
taking into consideration the language and the needs are not meeting young people where they're at to ensure that it's it's not just these rules that we create because we think it's you know it's good for you but you know when we say these things or when we create these systems or create these rules and policies how are they deeply affecting you and are they and I'll you know kind of reference our podcast a little bit that we're going to be talking about in a bit you know is this creativity or does this lead to creative chaos, right? And so, um, so that is um, an exciting thing to see our young people develop and, and who they bring into the conversation. Uh, yeah. Right, and that's one thing that's so important, at least for me and for, for all of us at Creative Generation is the exploration and the opportunity for young creatives in particular to use that creativity to tackle these issues of justice. I know in the past at Free Street, which is the, you know, social justice focused theater program uh, that you run in, in Chicago, you know, you focused on issues of, of water and of the ecology around your city and young people had a lot to say about what they learned from their communities but also about their visions for the future and that was a really tremendous piece and and I know there's also other types of justice oriented work that you do outside of the theater world so can you tell us just a little bit about how you all tackle issues of justice within the neighborhoods that you operate in in Chicago oh goodness you know it's it's you know, many different ways. I think um, to to take it back to Free Street to, you know, one exciting thing that we see as a result of, um, of our young people um, engaging and kind of unpacking these major themes through theater is that often these young people end up moving on to becoming activists in their own right. So when we did Parched, which was the one focused on water justice and even wasted, which was on um, environmental justice in the city of Chicago. What we saw because through our partnerships with organizations that are on the ground doing this work day in, day out, is that um, these partnerships then lead these young people to then become activists in their own right within these spaces, even outside of theater. Um, and so, um, so, what I'm also working on personally, both through my work at Free Street and also through um, just through the sector at large is, you know, how do we begin to create the conditions by which um, not only young people can engage in their art and develop their social consciousness and really unpack these issues through theater, but then how do we create the conditions that can then ultimately bring them back into the field. And that um, for me is wage equity. And so, you know, we have, we've seen a couple of really interesting initiatives. Um, Michelle Obama had announced this partnership with the Posse Foundation and Lin-Manuel Miranda to bring Posse scholars into fine arts colleges and universities. And to that, I say, wow, that's wonderful, but where are we sending them? And how are we making sure that when they graduate from college, they can raise a family as an artist? And so that wage equity, and of course, um, you know, diversifying the field um, and bringing in more BIPOC leaders and BIPOC folks into the spaces has been um, a major focus of mine over the last year uh, because, you know, Yes, arts for art's sake is absolutely important and is a key element 
of all of us really unpacking all of the things and processing all of the things. But we also do need more artists and leaders to continue that tradition. And so if I do anything in this world, <clears throat> in the seats that I am in, is, you know, if I can leave it knowing that, you know, we have created a world where, you know, these young people can then come back as adults and next level it through their artistic practice and through their lenses, and they don't have to have five different side hustles to help make that happen, then I'm happy. And, um, and then we have created a legacy that will then impact not only their neighborhoods and their communities, but then kind of the country and, and, and the world. You know, so much of what you just talked about speaks to the themes that emerged from my conversation with Amir Whitaker or Dr. Knucklehead as he's known. He's a, an artist, a musician, uh, a lawyer for the ACLU in Southern California, a board member of several arts and culture organizations, and a, a person who does exactly what you were just talking about, someone who, who cultivates the conditions for young creatives to pursue the social change that they want to see. Mm -hmm. And so much of his work was tied towards paying young artists to be activists in tackling policy issues that run outside of the education or arts and culture sectors. And, and I think actually maybe taking some of the work that you do and taking some of the work that he does are two really fascinating case studies um, that could really help inform the field. But I'll stop talking about that. Why don't we let our listeners uh, hear the conversation that we had, and then we'll come back on the flip side. Just a quick note before we start. Amir uses some punctuated language to emphasize one of his points in our conversation. Just wanted to give you all a heads up. Sounds good. Welcome, Amir. I am thrilled to have you join us on the Why Change podcast. You know, we first met a few years ago through a mutual colleague, and we've stayed in touch ever since through our, our mutual work at the intersection of arts and education and social change. You know, I just am so thrilled that you're here to share some of your story with us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Jeff. Yeah, and I do remember us meeting at that very powerful meeting with legislators and stuff and to be able to share some narrative then, but also just to see where this movement has grown since then and the work that you've been doing part of that. So it's just great to be here. Well, thanks. Yeah, it has been quite a journey since then. I remember back, it was a hotel in Los Angeles mm -hmm. at that conference with a bunch of, of state legislators. And that was such a cool moment. I think everyone was just blown away by all of the stories that came out. And, you know, I was really impressed with some of your approaches and just this radical grounding in creativity and justice of your work with young people of your own personal practice um, as an artist and as an advocate, and really the things that you've gone on to do, both as an activist, a musician, also with organizations like the ACLU of Southern California and more. So can you just give our listeners a bit of your origin story and how you got to where you are today? Sure, absolutely. So, uh, I mean, born and raised in Jersey, um, you know, that that's, home that's the old country first 21 years of my life and there um, my father was a musician so I guess in the arts that's kind of my gateway during the hip-hop generation the hip-hop um, the birth of hip-hop and he was a DJ and I always wanted to play instruments wanted to do more with music um, and I always loved what my dad did electronically and different things but I wasn't able to get like an, an instrument until I was in high school and uh, well shortly after graduating high school actually 
And what I noticed was what having that instrument did for me or having that creative outlet, how it supported me, kept me safe, you know, provided me sanctuary and just did so much for me. Um, that was like my introduction into the arts and becoming someone who, who embraced the arts. But, you know, Dr. Knucklehead, as I'm referred to, um, the, the, the path has lots of twists and turns. You know, I was arrested as a youth, kicked out of school and got in sorts of all sorts. Well, I still get in trouble sometimes. It's usually good trouble now. But, um, you know, but before I really locked into the arts, um, I, I had a lot of things. I, my creative energy was not always directed in the right direction. You know, so with Project Knucklehead, I say the formula we always say, um, creative energy plus no creative outlet equals a creative disaster. You know, a lot of our young people are getting in trouble or, you know, doing different things because of that lack of creative outlet. So, um, you know, my story, I saw that personally growing up. And actually I have my guitar here when I actually got my first instrument, my first guitar, I purchased it with crack cocaine um, because I never had a, a music class in my high school. Even though I'm, I'm a musician today and like a professional musician, I just had a gig last week. I pretty much had a gig every week <laughs> the past couple of weeks. Um, and it, you know, it brings in money. It's some of my closest friends are musicians now and that sort of thing. But in high school, I didn't even have a music class, you know? And I come from this city in New Jersey, Plainfield, New Jersey, or P-Funk as we call it. That's a very musical city. You know, we have musicians that are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you know, musicians that played with Miles Davis. And yet I, I didn't have exposure to music in, in my high school. So, you know, after finishing high school, going through, you know, I, I was a knucklehead, so I got kicked out of school. You know, um, I started at community college and was eventually transferred to a university where I minored in music and just, you know, studied music more. Um, and then in grad school, where, that's when I moved to Los Angeles about 15 years ago for grad school. And, you know, just here, the arts and culture in the city are just so inspiring, right? It's, it's, it's all over. I mean, it's what brings people to the city. To be honest, my introduction to LA came through the arts, you know, through hip hop and through new, the movies and different things. And, and that was my reference point. So um, even though, as we all know, it's clearly not all real, <laughs> right? And that's the thing about the arts. It creates um, creates a canvas or a whole new picture, but sometimes we can't distinguish that from reality, especially here in L.A. But it's a very inspiring city. I mean, here we talk about the creative economy where one out of six jobs are actually um, in the require, you know, the creative skill or in the creative sector. Yet we have some of our youth we work with through Project Knucklehead that don't have arts in their school and they've had to start petitions to keep arts in their school and that sort of thing. So we're seeing a generation later, because it's, it's hard to imagine, I'm a full generation ago, but a generation later, you know, we, we're still seeing the lack of access for students to have arts, especially for low-income students, black and brown students, marginalized students. And Project Knucklehead and Dr. Knucklehead, you know, I've been on a path that's been, over the past few years, especially meeting with you, Jeff, right, there's just been this intersection of, you know, art, creativity, and then justice and freedom and liberation. You know, I mean, people, there's creative justice. We have this arts justice movement. We started at the ACLU, um, you know, Arts for Incarcerated Youth Network is now called the, you know, Arts for Healing and Justice Network. And, and there's this intersection and in understanding, growing understanding that 
there's a connection between arts and justice. And I like to think that, you know, Dr. Knucklehead lives right on the intersection of the streets of arts and justice. So you've mentioned this nickname, Dr. Knucklehead, which I, I love. And I know that you've done a lot of work in the legal side of things with the ACLU and advocating in that real formal capacity. So talk to me a little bit about what a musician is doing as a lawyer and sure. advocating for justice reform. Absolutely. So I'm part of the ACLU of Southern California and we're, we're based in Los Angeles and we cover you know much of Southern California or millions of people millions of students even we, we support. And I'm one of about 35, 40 lawyers. And even in our office, my boss used to call me the free spirit lawyer. <laughs> um, they, uh, even though, you know, law itself is definitely an art, it's not a science, you know, so justice is an art because we, we're still trying to figure out what it is and create it every day. Freedom is a practice, I always say, you know, it, it's something like art, you know, you, you develop throughout your life. And, um, at the ACLU, well, in California, I should, I, I should start th three over three and a half years ago when I first moved back to California, you know, um, well, let me go back before that. I moved back to California from Alabama about four years ago. And in Alabama, I was working for the Southern Poverty Law Center, another civil rights law firm, and doing education work as well, working for young people. And I remember meeting with some superintendents in some school districts where they're making tough decisions and making cuts and one superintendent i'll never forget when he described like his quote he said yeah we just eliminated arts from all of our middle schools and he shared that with me and my jaw kind of dropped because you know middle school teens and pre-tweens anyone who raises them or has little cousins or siblings know that they're a hot mess and if they don't have something for their time or energy or imagination then you've got trouble the, the school environment will suffer Right, because we were there doing work because we wanted to improve the conditions. So I remember hearing that in Alabama, and it wasn't a damn thing I could do about it because there was no law to protect it. When I moved to California four years ago, and really when I came to the ACLU about three and a half years ago, uh, we learned about the, or they, they were already active or were aware that the California Education Code, you know, guaranteed the right to arts in your school for students and not just like, you know, art, always, you know, making glue and macaroni to a piece of paper when you're in kindergarten kind of art, which, you know, that's beautiful art, taking nothing from it. But students have the right to visual art, dance, music, you know, and, and other forms of art, theater, and even media arts, right? Because arts is robust. We're here in the land of Disney and, and imagination. So students have a right to that in their classroom. And once I was aware of that and knew that we had that sword there, um, you know, I just started connecting with arts advocates, the, the California Alliance for Arts Education, Arts for Incarcerated Youth Network, I actually joined their board and had become board chair and just started intersecting with folks that are doing work for what they call art equity. I mean, I call it art equality because we still don't have equal arts yet, you know? Equity is beyond equality and we're not even at equality. So, you know, I, I saw this work and I, what we added to it or what I added to it was the framing of arts as a civil right and human right, you know, because ACLU were a civil rights organization. We sue the government, you know, like we sued the Trump administration over 400 times for his related civil rights violations. We sued, you know, city government, county government, state government. We pushed legislative to protect the people. And since millions of California students are having their arts right, their right to art violated, um, 
I wanted to do something about it. We wanted to do something about it. So we've been meeting with partners, considering different strategies, and we started a whole movement called Arts Justice, which I remember starting it and creating a hashtag Arts Justice almost three years ago and thinking like, man, is this something that people are going to understand or will it, you know, how will it go? And, you know, lo and behold, a few years later, our students started a whole Arts Justice Council that's all over the state of California. Um, one of my interns, a former intern who just graduated from law school, just finished law school yesterday, she started a whole organization called Arts Justice that, you know, gave art supplies to hundreds of youth. Um, and if you look at the hashtag Arts Justice, you'll see it's been used by many organizations and some organizations have adopted it. So, you know, the, the Arts Justice movement is afoot and COVID hit and kind of, you know, threw a wrench in things like it all did with everything, but we're still alive and we're still moving. That's great. And you know, we, a creative generation, absolutely support that whole line of thinking about arts and cultural education as a human right. You and I have actually shared a, a virtual stage uh, talking about that issue with a lot of um, policy makers and researchers and, and other thinkers in our field. Um, and we'll definitely drop a link to the arts justice work uh, in the show notes because it is really, really important. But there's an interesting dichotomy in that, right? Like we have to be working in the public policy space mm -hmm. to ensure that there is equal or further equitable access to arts education to deliver on that promise for all young people. But then we also know that when young people have that robust arts and cultural education, they actually can use their uh, music or visual art as protests to advance other issues of justice in our communities. And I know I've, I've seen you all out drumming on the steps of City Hall or, or other government buildings. So Absolutely. talk to me a little bit about how you work with young right people to use their art speech. in the pursuit we have of a broader constitutional justice right to free Freedom of speech and freedom of expression. And art is just one of the most spiritual, purest and raw forms of that, right? And everyone knows that. So what we've been doing, with the youth, actually, we, we've learned from the youth. Um, shout out to, you know, one youth, her name is Maya Edwards Pena. She's graduated from Venice High School, class of 2020. But I had been taking dance with this young lady. She's been teaching dance at protests since she was 16. You know, I remember over three years ago at the protest, there were 30,000 people protesting, you know, with the teachers in, in, in Los Angeles, and, and Maya was teaching dance. and. I had worked with this group of students, students deserve to do other, put on art galleries and different things. And even before when I was in Florida and Alabama, we worked with students to just creatively express and creatively dissent. Because, you know, art, art is fear. I think that's one of the reasons why it's not in education too, because art holds up a mirror, right? And art holds up the truth. And people know that. That's why dictators and oppressive governments, they always go for the artists. They always try to suppress art because it's the, a raw form of truth. And what we started last year during the uprising um, after the murder of our brother George Floyd, you know, a whole movement started, right, globally, just one of the largest movements in history. That's still alive. We, we feel it's still alive and we're still part of that. But something happened where people started donating and supporting, you know, Black nonprofits. And Project Knucklehead, we've been around for nine years, <laughs> but we received more donations last year than we did in our entire nine years of existence, essentially. Um, but there was one, and you know, I'm the volunteer director, so we've been around nine years, but we've been on a shoestring budget that some years, literally half of it has come from, you know, whatever I could donate or all, it's always usually what we could raise. And sometimes we get little grants. 
but last year we received a generous donation, just $25,000. And what I did with that money was since it came in the spirit of our brother, George Floyd, you know, I reached out to 15, well, actually about 20 young black artists from ages 13, you know, and up, um, and just offered them fellowships to create in the spirit of justice, in the spirit of freedom, um, and offered them stipends. And we called the program our Freedom Fellows. And, you know, the youth were all over the country, and we even had a few globally. But our youth in, here in LA came up with the idea of doing something called Freedom Fridays, where we would take over <laughs> basically continue to uprise and continue to protest because this we started this back in august when people were still out in the streets every day so we said well we want to be out in the streets too not only that but we want to bring people to medicine we want to bring people to dance the drumming the music um we called it a creative uprising from our very first action at city hall where we had an action in City Hall um, and we marched to LAPD down the street. LA, we had an action at LA City Hall and we marched to LAPD down the street. And we pretty much kept that up monthly and now we're on month nine. And each time we actually center the arts, that's very much intentional. One, knowing that students, youth don't have access to it, but also that we as human beings need that for our own healing, for our own sanity. You know, I think this pandemic has shown us when you see people you know, Netflix and all these other <laughs> creative media places are cleaning up because people are really turning to the arts and people realizing how much they miss their concerts and their outdoor events. And, you know, the arts are a part of our soul and the soul is a part of our wellness and our existence. So um, through the, our creative uprisings, you know, literally just following the youth, free the youth. Um, and and our, our mantra at Project Knucklehead is free the youth. And we use that as to represent both, you know, freedom of expression, creative expression, but also freedom from these systems of oppression, right? So freedom from police, you know, harming our communities, freedom from cages and mass incarceration in the prison industrial complex that prioritizes money over livelihood. So we're still trying to get free. And for us at Project Knucklehead and our, our youth, art is just one of the most important forms of freedom. I so appreciate that perspective. And, you know, in, in some of our research at Creative Generation, we've we found that, you know, there's an element that will sort of always be there is that that young creatives who are operating in the pursuit of social change and their adult counterparts who are supporting their work always will be navigating these very strict systems that govern what they do, whether that be the justice system or the mm -hmm. arts and culture funding system or the education system, because we operate in societies that have systems for everything. And that type of work, what we found is just incredibly exhausting for people. And so right. that idea of, of wellness, starting really with yourself to be well, particularly through the arts is so important to allow us as people, as humans, to be able to pursue these broader um, objectives that we're trying to do by changing those systems. And, and so I just, I want to underscore that point that like we have to bring that, that personal and community wellness into the equation when we're doing these large scale um, type of projects like you all are doing with those Freedom Fridays because that's how we stay well and able to do that. And I know that you as a musician have gone on a little bit of a journey to explore music and culture from, you know, your own cultures. Um, 
traveling around the world. Can you tell us a little bit about the journey that you went on uh, last year? Absolutely. Sure. So starting in 2019, um, I actually gave my job, my boss, the one who called me the free spirit lawyer, <laughs> I gave them an ultimatum and said, hey, I kind of need to do this project that requires me to travel through all these countries and be out of the office a lot. And if y'all don't let me do it, I'll, I'm going to leave. <laughs> so literally, you know, my dream job, I had to give them that ultimatum. But luckily, they were understanding like, all right, Amir, we, we got you. You can go. Um, so over the next nine months, you know, from I started in June 2019 and I pretty much went up until February until COVID hit. Um, I traveled through 17 countries and I think probably about 20 states, um, you know, just all, all over on this journey to explore music of the Afro diaspora of the Afro experience, because I myself didn't even know that black people were all over the world. We're in Panama, we're in Peru, we're in Colombia and Costa Rica and, you know, all over because, you know, enslaved people went to all of these places and we have this view in America or in the United States that, you know, black is this and Latin is this. And, you know, so to even connect with our Afro Latin brothers and sisters. So I traveled through even the Caribbean. The first place I went to was Jamaica and I worked with some youth there. We actually created music. Project Knuckle had built like some music studios or provided equipment to the libraries. And then we went through Central America, went from everywhere. I mean, started in Belize, Guatemala, El Salvador, um, Peru, you know, in South America, Colombia, Argentina. And what I've noticed is culture and art is like a passport, you know, especially if you're American, if you're Black American, um, you see our art and culture everywhere. Hip hop is king. You know, hip hop is a language and a religion in most places. Um, you know, soul, blues, rock and roll, jazz, Salsa, different, you know, experiences and, and music. Um, if you, I, I've, I've been able to connect with people. I mean, even today I'm talking to people in Cuba, Brazil and Colombia, you know, like all about Afro culture. And it came from this journey where I've studied on, on that journey. Um, I, I guess I left this out, but I started it in, in 2019 because that was 400 years since 1619 when enslaved Africans first came to what's now known as, you know, the United States or America. And I felt like I didn't know my own culture and my own traditions as an African. And even though my family's been here for hundreds of years, but through cultural genocide, it was, there was active cultural genocide where colonizers erased, you know, what I had, the memory. So, you know, I mean, even me having braids, right? This is like an Afro expression in its art because there's like symmetry in it. But this is something we've handed down through generations that's been around thousands of years, but not all traditions lasted. You know, they took our drum, they, they made it illegal for us to dance certain ways. So through that, they, they killed our culture. But what I found was by traveling throughout, you know, the Caribbean and Latin America, and I can't wait to travel to Africa as well, but I've been able to reconnect with culture and reconnect with Afro culture. And through that, I've found some of my new best friends, you know, and, and it's, it's always like that with the arts. Like I find that you connect with artists and just people who appreciate the arts or we call ourselves culturalists, you know, culturalists just have a, a different way of connecting to the everything around us. And I feel like I found a new village through traveling. I, I love that. And you know, it's funny, the all of the co-hosts on this podcast we, that's what we talk about when we get together is we've all gotten to know each other through this, this experience, the shared experience that we have of being um, in the creative sector and doing the type of work that we do. And it is that shared language, even though all of us come from vastly different backgrounds, 
um, we have a, a, sh a type of shared history. Um, and, and that's something that has become, I, I love that term, that passport that allows you to come together with people. So I, um, and thanks for sharing that story. That's really powerful. I, I, I would hope that a lot, a lot more people would be able to do something like that um, in their, their lifetimes. It was a privilege, like to to be able to do it. You know, like I didn't have children and I had a job, and I was willing to like lose my job over it. But sometimes, that's why freedom is a practice. Like, I woke up that morning and said, "I'm free. I'm going to be free today." And I, for me to be free, I need to do this. Wow, that is just such a powerful statement to end our conversation on. As we get to know folks all around the world, one of the things that most interests me is what really keeps people ticking? What keeps them focused on what it is that they do? And it sounds like you had one really tremendous experience that that allowed for you to, to explore that within yourself. And as we've been talking to people, we've asked the same set of questions to everybody. And, and I'd hope that maybe you could do the same for us today. Mm -hmm. Let's get started here. The first one is, who inspires you? The youth. I think, you know, the future, because they are the future. And seeing their hope and their potential, because I love it. Yesterday, I had a presentation with four young people who just did better than me, <laughs> and they're all in high school. And that's just so inspiring to they because they have the solutions, you know, they're not as corrupt as us and their minds haven't been as jaded, jaded. So like, I like the creative generation, right? It's it's like a new thing. So the youth always inspire us. And, and in hip hop, we have a, a saying, we say hip hop is dead, because each day there's going to be something new, the youth are going to create a, a new version of it. So the youth in that infinite inspiration inspire me. What keeps you motivated? Oh man, I think motivation for me, and, and I studied motivation, the doctor, doctor came in educational psychology where I li literally had to take several classes on human motivation. Um, and I think it's two things. I always feel like I'm running, right? But I'm, am I running or Am I chasing something or am I running from something, you know, and, and there, there's a difference because I definitely there's a fear. I'm, I'm motivated by the fear of what would happen if and like just all right, I got to, you know, support and create liberation because um, a part of me can't exist. I can't exist in a world. We, we know we're not in a just complete society. At least some of us have accepted that. And I always think of the quote from Howard Zinn, you know, he's a historian, one of my favorite people. I was a history major too. Um, but he says, you can't be neutral on a moving train, you know? So society's going in one direction and it's taking us in one direction. And if you're not doing anything, you're part of that. Um, so my motivation is to help reroute that train and get us on the right path to justice. And, you know, it's, it's my, my love for my people. And, and that's all people, you know, all human people, but especially African people. Where are you most grounded? I think I'm most grounded. <laughs> it's interesting. I, it's a good and a bad thing, but in my head and myself, um, because I'm able to have really honest conversations with myself at the end of the day. I'm really comfortable looking in the mirror and talking to myself and being honest about what I need for me and what I have to do. Um, and that allows me to, you know, be confident in how I have to walk through the world or if I have to say no to things or if, from other people or even within myself. Um, so I'm grounded in knowing that I can, as we say in Jersey, or, you know, keep it real with myself, like, and be real. Um, because I'm, I'm not, Dr. Knucklehead doesn't have fear of um, 
the honesty with himself because it, it hurts and it's the truth, right? But like, I think that's such a grounding thing to be, um, to be able to face yourself. How do you stay focused? <laughs> Who said I stay focused? <laughs> but um, <laughs> that's a great thing. I think, you know, I, I ground myself, and it relates to being grounded, but like, you know, every morning I start with a prayer to the ancestors and just kind of grounding myself and understanding that I'm part of something that started before me and that will continue after me. So I'm just a light in the, the bright, gleaming, you know, shine of history. So as we say, keep our eyes on the prize. You know, that's one of my favorite freedom songs and a song I wrote, I say that repeatedly. So my focus, what helps me keep focus is keep my eyes on the prize, you know, and it's, it's a daily struggle. And that's why I said, freedom is a practice and hope is a discipline, you know? So both of those things, um, I have days where I don't have hope. I actually had a period of years, I think, where I was like, man, fuck hope, <laughs> you know? But, um, you know, staying focused just remind, it, staying focused re requires those constant reminders that it's a process. And, you know, sometimes you might, it might seem like you're not making progress, but you can't let that make you lose focus. And finally, why change? Well, why not change? <laughs> I say why not change? Because I don't think we've gotten it correct yet, at least the story of America, right? And I know there are millions of people who disagree with that, who feel like America was great and we need to make it like it was. But there's so many people who feels like America has never lived up to its promise. America has never reached its potential. And there now I'm realizing there's a global community who you know, we're, we're pushing the world. It's a global thing. There's United Nations, right? And international bodies that really need to do better for the world because we're facing extinction with our planet. We're facing global pandemic. We're facing all of these things. So, you know, it's, it's really important. Well, thank you so much for being with us on the Why Change podcast. This has been a really great conversation and I appreciate you spending the time with us. Thank you. All right, Carla, we are back. You know, I so enjoy my time with Dr. Knucklehead. Every time I'm with him, I learn so much because he is so smart and has this tremendous perspective to see things from all sorts of different angles, policy, youth development, through his lens as a musician and a cultural practitioner and, and so much more. I'm wondering though, I've known him for a while and you are just hearing his story for the first time. What really stood out to you? most? You know, um, identified a lot with his own personal trajectory. Um, I think this notion of being a young person trying to find their place um, in the world and creativity or a lack of resources um, to fully develop your creativity, um, you know, is certainly something that um, I know so many of our young folks even today struggle with. And so I, I acknowledge that and, and, and the challenges that, in, that, that school systems have, uh, particularly in under-resourced communities to make this happen. And so many are, um, but still this narrative when he mentioned um, the work that he was doing in Alabama and, and hearing and having his jaw drop when, you know, somebody said, yeah, we're just going to cut the arts from all middle schools. And um, 
which kind of helped reinforce a lot of um, my own passions in ensuring that young people, that all young people have access to the arts within the school day, um, which kind of harkens to the work that I've done in Illinois. Um, but I, you know, and of, again, like this notion of a lack of creative outlets and a lack of creative resources leads to this creative chaos. And the fact that, um, you know, it is through creativity that he has been able to kind of weave his life in and out into these fields, education, law, and, and the fact that that art never left him and that it was so impactful um, that not only did it not leave him, but that it should not leave anybody. And that, you know, that we need more Dr. Knuckleheads at the policy level, really continuing to tell this story about how the arts is, you know, they are not an extra thing. They are not a punctuation. They are not simply an ephemeral moment. They are part of our DNA and the fiber of who we are. And um, arts is a civil right is something that we see in the original, um, you know, in the original ESSA policy, you know, in, uh, at the national level. And um, I felt affirmed in, in what, um, what Amir was saying. Um, and I truly hope that, you know, and we need more Amirs and I wanna find all of the Amirs of the world because I know we are all out there, you know, doing the thing, but, you know, I often wonder, you know, you know, I think our climb is still convincing legislators and convincing policymakers in education and the like that, you know, art is not just something you can casually pull out and pull back in and not see a direct effect on the whole child. You know, that's exactly right, Carla. I think one of the things that stood out to me in this conversation and many conversations that you and I have both been in, and you mentioned some of your work doing policy work in, in Illinois, and I was present for a lot of that as well, which is you know how we got to know each other. Yeah. Um, but what's, what's amazing to me is this misconception that the arts aren't part of family life, of your neighborhood and community, of the school system, of the justice system, of the the food and agriculture system of housing and urban development. There are arts and cultural elements of all of those things. Yes. And it's wild to me that people think that we can divorce it out or simply just remove it as if it wouldn't have any impact if we didn't properly resource it or if it didn't actually transcend those elements of people that have been extrapolated into sectors of our societies. and. That also speaks to the fact that we can't think that we're done if just the arts are put in schools and kids have 60 or 70 minutes of arts and cultural education a week, or if we pass more money in a budget that fund arts and cultural organizations. We really have to holistically take into effect the ways that all of those sectors impact community life. So one of the things that stood out to me that Dr. Knucklehead was talking about was the idea that in their pursuit of justice, of delivering on the promise of arts and cultural education as a human right, 
that they're also trying to abolish youth prisons because that is yes. one of the elements that is stopping young people from reaching their full creative potential. Or they're trying to work on food justice because that's an element that is stopping young people from reaching their creative potential. That it's not just that simple, that we have to look at things holistically in the same way that we look after the development of the whole child. We have to also look at the development of all of the community elements that go into making that whole child. That's absolutely right. And and into and and how are we building these into our our infrastructures and in, you know into our city ecologies. Um, I can speak specifically to Chicago, for example. You know, most of the money that goes to the arts in Chicago goes to um, to to the north side or our economic center downtown and the north side you know is is more you know you know there are certainly different economic situations on the north side but it is largely the conditions are, are, are widely different from the ones on the south and west sides and so so wherever the money goes and wherever those resources go is where the exposure is going and that is where um, the opportunities to experience <clears throat> and be affirmed and create and have um, artistic spaces as centers of community development and economic impact, you know, that is a huge loss for communities who do not have those resources. And so some of the work that we're doing at Free Street as well is uh, we were hired by the city to do cultural asset mapping work on the south and west sides and mostly Spanish-speaking uh, neighborhoods uh, in addition to other south and west side communities. And part of that was one, just identifying what is there. What do, how, you know, how do the communities identify cultural assets? What are they? Um, what are they up to? What do they need? Uh, because we really need to um, do the work of ensuring that access and resources and that artistic spaces um, exist in those communities, not just for the sake of art, but for the sake of the fact that those spaces can do more than just the making. This is where the dialogue takes place. This is where the organizing takes place. This is where you know, spaces who, who that do reside in our artistic spaces should be spending about 80% of their money within the community to infuse those dollars and, you know, and boost the economy. And so it is a very multi-layered, multifaceted discussion. And so again, to say that the arts are just this kind of extra and not see it as an essential part of the lifeblood of a community and a city and et cetera, you know, is, is, is a narrative that needs to shift. You know, and it's interesting, in, in some of our research at Creative Generation, one of our major findings from our 2019 study that underpins a lot of the work that we do was that both young creatives who are catalyzing social change, as well as their adult counterparts that are creating those circumstances for their creativity to thrive, they operate in really strict systems and structures. And that's something that, that Amir and I talked about is that those structures can be exhausting, yes. you know? And so much of our creative practice as cultural practitioners or actors or musicians or dancers or, or whatever your, your practice is as an artist, you know, 
need to contribute also to our well-being because yes. if if we as individuals aren't maintaining our personal infrastructure to use the term that you use how can we ever contribute to these greater infrastructures of social change that require so much of us right we have to strike that balance between personal well-being so that we can contribute to that community well-being and i think that the making of art the artistic healing that can come with it for ourselves is such an important element that we can't forget yes and i think that has to do with intention right what it you know um when shelter in place was instituted in Chicago, um, the first thing our team did at Free Street was take some time to recalibrate in our homes. We had to rest, <laughs> you know, we had to uh, make sure our, you know, if we were parents that our children were okay, that, that our elders were okay, that we personally were okay. There, you know, there was so much so many unknowns and even today there's still so many unknowns but yes it is you know i i i think a lot about intention and and there have been organizations and companies that have cranked out a ton of content and and some of that is you know in in, in my opinion for the sake of creating content you know I, and that is not a judgment call um but i do um wonder about the well-being of the people making and, and, and the intention behind the making. And so we at Free Street took a very, um, you know, we took a path that, that, that took our entire company into consideration before we made um, any very specific moves. And even now, as we're hopefully seeing light at the end of the tunnel uh, on this pandemic, the thing that I, um, my takeaway from it is that, you know, we are, and my hope is that we are entering a great reimagining of how we can do our work, how we can make work, how, and, and, and where it is presented and how it is presented and how accessible um, it is to, um, to the folks um, absorbing it in, in whichever way that we present it. Um, and so, you know, I would say there is, and I forget the type, the name of the, of the document, but there is this document about social justice work um, that everybody has a role and, and you don't necessarily stay in that particular role for the entire duration of your time in social justice work. But, you know, some of us are, you know, the, the, the more vocal advocates, some of us are, you know, resting, some of us are sitting back and doing the research and some of us are doing other things, but everybody has a turn to take the mic is the notion. Everybody has a turn to carry the load and lift the load um, and, and push the agenda forward. And we just have to be secure in the fact that whenever we wanna jump back into it in the way that we wanna jump back into it, we absolutely can, but we should not be doing it at the expense of our people. There is no gold star for being exhausted. Um, you know, this is also something that I've also seen when I was working in direct service. It was like exhaustion as a badge of, you know, as a badge of how down you were for the cause. And that mentality does very little for the cause, but deeply, deeply impacts um, your workforce and, 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 your, and, and the people that you are depending on to help continue that. So as a leader, 
I'm very cognizant of that. And as a leader, I also feel um, that I need to forgive myself sometimes and that I need to call myself out. Um, and so my hope is that as we evolve out of this pandemic, that well-being is as important as the output, whatever that may be. I think that that is such a wonderful perspective, Carla, because, you know, that idea of a badge of honor of being like burnt out is so real within the nonprofit industrial complex, at least here in the United States. And I'll yeah. just speak from that perspective. And I think it's interesting too, because it also implies that social justice work is a certain segment that one can step in or step out of. And it's interesting, we did a study um, a couple of months ago and have been working um, it through in a pilot phase with educators um, across the US, intertwining social justice education and the kind of developmentally appropriate standards that have been developed in that world and arts education with the developmentally appropriate standards that have been developed in that world. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating because there was a, um, an educator who at the, I think, fifth and final session of this pilot said, well, shouldn't we just call it arts education because shouldn't all arts education be intertwined with social justice? And, you know, that kind of, as the academic in me was like, well, but how would people know that what we're talking about is two things coming together? But then it, it made me think where I was like, you know what, that's right. And I think if we assume that all of our work focused on communities or young people or arts and culture or whatever has to be integrated with social justice, really has to have that lens on it, then we also need to accept exactly what you're saying, that sometimes you're the social justice person that's resting. Sometimes you're the social justice person that's writing. Sometimes you're the social justice person that's out in front and leading a group, but that you are always carrying the banner doing what you need to do, even if that's taking a nap on a Tuesday afternoon, because Absolutely. that's what you need to do to, to heal. I think that's such an important perspective. Wow, I, we could do a whole episode on that, Carla. Yes. Um, unfortunately, that does bring us to the end of our time here today. Um, but before we leave, I wanna ask you, what's, what's going on you know, next for you in the next few weeks? What, is, uh, what, do, what should our listeners be paying attention to out in the world? Hmm. So um, in, in June, Free Street will have its, um, you know, this project, 57 Blocks, we will be doing our workshop performance, digital performance of uh, 57 Blocks, which will be coming out in June, which we're very, very excited about. This is kind of the precursor to, um, to the big show, um, which we hope to happen live. Um, and our goal is, you know, when it does happen live, that um, our audiences will begin the play at our Pulaski Park location and get on a bus and the play will continue until we get to the end of those 57 blocks to back of the yards. So we're very, very excited about that. We'll also be um, engaging in an individual giving campaign um, to raise funds for this particular show. Um, so all of that will be coming up in June. Um, and um, we are continuing to um, to do our, our work in cultural asset mapping and developing and highlighting and uplifting um, our communities on the South and West sides and the cultural assets that they bring and that they celebrate. And um, we can't wait to share that out so that folks can engage with it and have more discussions around that. Um, and then otherwise, 
um, you know, we're just continuing to, um, you know, develop, you know, what the plan is um, on a personal level. God, summer is just, it's tomorrow. So, so what does that world look like? And, and how are we, you know, creating some really fun opportunities, not only for myself, because hello rest, <laughs> but also, you know, for my daughter and our family and things. I'm right there with you with the summer. I am very excited for that. And you know, the work, the work never does end. It sounds like you have a lot on your plate. We also have a lot going on, but I'm very excited to uh, take phone calls and write things outside. Uh, we have a nice little backyard, so it will definitely be um, my plan for the future. For listeners, though, I would encourage you to check out, too, um, there is an international celebration happening from the 24th to the 30th of May. It is International Arts Education Week, designated by the United Nations Education, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, or UNESCO. Um, and this year's theme is actually about arts education and social inclusion. So um, that week, we'll be highlighting a ton of stories exactly like what we've been talking about in Los Angeles and in Chicago, um, focused on how arts education can contribute to the development of young people, um, particularly those young people who are experiencing um, challenges that, that put them on the margins um, and uh, really focusing on the outcomes of social inclusion. So that should be a great time too and, and everyone should mark their calendars. Well, Carla, that is it for today. Thanks so much everyone for listening to the Why Change podcast. Thanks to Dr. Knucklehead Amir Whitaker for joining us and thank you, Carla, for being here today. So happy to be here. Thanks, Jeff. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Why Change, the podcast for a creative generation. If you would like to support this podcast aimed at amplifying the voices of creative changemakers around the world, please consider donating through the link located in the episode's show notes. These show notes contain all sources discussed in the episode. Be sure to follow, like, subscribe, and share the Why Change podcast to make sure you and your networks get episodes delivered directly to you and that you don't miss any stories of creative work happening around the world. If you haven't already, be sure to follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Also, we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at info at creative-generation.org. We would love to hear your ideas, the topics you want to learn about, and why change matters to you. Our show is produced and edited by Daniel Stanley. Our music is by Distant Cousins. A special thanks to our contributors, co-hosts, and the team at Creative Generation for their support. Are you hoping to promote an event, advertise a job, or recruit people to participate in one of your programs? Creative Generation has a number of opportunities to advertise your work through our platforms with the Campaign for a Creative Generation and the Why Change podcast. Check out our website at creative-generation.org and click the Get Involved button to learn more about our advertising packages.